Become another man. The dice rolls and I take another chance. But life on life terms can burn real deep. All my scars will show that emotion bleeds. So is death just a place that we go and we die? And is life just a test only meant for the wise? Oh no, daddy. Hi there everyone and welcome to Straight From The Source, the podcast from APSU, the Association of Participating Service Users. I'm your host, Emma Rafferty. In these podcasts, we're going to hear from people whose lives have been impacted by drugs and alcohol and from others who work in the field. Thank you so much for joining us. Just a warning before we get into the interview that this episode contains content which may be triggering for some individuals. It discusses suicide and self-harm. If you want to talk to someone about suicide or self-harm, in Australia, you can call the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. Today, our podcast guest is Brendan. Brendan is a member of the APSU Speakers Bureau and is a consumer consultant in the mental health and alcohol and other drug space. Brendan speaks about his struggles with mental health and suicidality, as well as being a consumer and a professional. Brendan's story is at once sad and uplifting and reflects on the importance of having a voice. Okay, thanks so much for joining us, Brendan. I really appreciate it. Uh, So where to start? First of all, um, maybe tell me a little bit about how your experience with substance use began or where you see that whole journey is beginning. Um, I guess I was lucky in, in some ways in that I managed to finish high school before I really got in, into using. Um, I, I guess, like, well, I look back, I sort of think I've been using drugs for slightly less period of time than mental health issues that I had. Um, and the two are very much interlinked mm. because I started using drugs because I struggled around social anxiety, um, you know, feeling that, I had something to give that people were interested in me. Um, yeah, I really struggled with that kind of stuff for, you know, for the end of high school, which was a real mess for me. But I finally got it together, I guess, what I needed to. And so in some ways, I sort of think, okay, I'm lucky in that, you know, I found drugs late. But then <laughs> um, then I found them, you know, because I got into the, the rave scene over in WA, which was which was taking off back then in the um, early 90s. And it's like I would use all the time and to the point where I couldn't fathom how I could go out unless I was on something. Yeah. Um, and that spiralled to a point where I, I thought, okay, I'm going to... I need to change things or I'm going to take my own life. But that... But prior to that, I'd already thought of taking my own life anyway. When I was in year 10, and I'd, I'd changed schools twice, I was struggling. I couldn't, didn't have any friends, didn't want to go to school, wasn't really talking about it with anybody. And um, I had the idea that, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll hang myself and then that will solve all the issues. And um, I was, you know, standing... And I had the dog, my dog's uh, lead around my neck and I was standing, had it hooked up to the goal. I was standing on a chair with it around my neck and I was thinking, okay, all I need to do is take this step and step off and that'll be it, which I didn't do. And, but I never spoke to anybody about it. 
like for for a long time after, and and so I guess this for me that started uh, a very problematic way of dealing with things mm. in that I I never looked to ask for help, and I would always deny that there was a problem, and um, I guess that kept coming it kept coming back. I mean, you know, when I would try and, you know, cut back on drugs or if I was trying to manage employment and and drug taking or my mental health, is that I would always deny that there was a problem or, you know, no, everything's fine. And where where did it change? Like, when was the first time that you did start to self-medicate? Uh, it was... It was in... I think in year 11, like, I... I spoke dope a couple of times, but didn't really think too much about it. And you know, like I'd had alcohol a bit, and certainly more in year twelve, I started you know to drink more and go to parties and whatever. But I was like really bad at drinking. I would drink too much too quickly, and then I'd get really ill. You know, I knew people who we who were smoking dope as well as doing other stuff, and I think that appeal of doing something different. And then trying it and finding, okay, I kind of enjoy this feeling of not being worried. So when you first started using weed or party drugs, yeah. rave, whatever, um, like it sounds like you had a positive experience, but at mm. some stage did that start to impact negatively on your mental health? And uh, Definitely. And I think it was only within the space of a year. And I would have been, like I would use... I guess, recreational drugs, so acid, ecstasy, um, some speed. I'd use, like, every weekend. We'd party and I'd smoke, you know, every day in between. Um, So I was using quite a bit and I was working. Like, I stopped, dropped out of uni to work part-time so that I could concentrate on partying, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Did you did you know that then, or we we did it just feel like uni was all too hard and you were having a break, or? Um, like a bit of both. Like I got into my first pick for uni, and then realised that it was something I didn't want to do. Mm. And then I was enjoying this freedom of being able to take drugs and go out, doing that for uh, for a year, and then I'd gotten to the point where during the week like I struggled to be able to do anything like if it was to go out and catch up with friends certainly like I felt like I'd needed more than just dope mm. like I wouldn't leave the house unless I was on something like you had no energy um no it was more that I couldn't I wouldn't be able to be the person I wanted to be um yeah. unless I was on something and that really started to mess with how I saw myself and as I struggled at times to be able to score like I started to then think well you know if this is all life is is that I'm only happy or comfortable when I'm high then I don't know if I really want if I really want to be bothered Mm. or that it's all too difficult to uh to have to rely on on taking drugs to feel good about myself I thought no fuck this this isn't a life that I want to live. And so I started to think about suicide then. And like I, I remember these really intense feelings that I had to change something drastically or I was going to take my own life. And, um, and so I did. I made a 
address I made a spur of the minute decision to because um, I was living in Western Australia at the time to move back to Victoria and I, I remember ringing my brother and said oh can I come and live with you and you know, he, was, he was happy because we were always close and then yeah I packed and my mum got home from work and saw me with a suitcase and burst into tears mm-hmm. <laughs> I said yeah I'm going I'm on flight um, yeah and I yeah and I was gone the next day I'd left and I've never been back to WA wow. since. Yeah, and, and I like I cut all contact with all those friends and I thought, yeah, I have to I have to go I have to get rid of all this if I wanna if I wanna any type of life. Because I deferred uni, I'm I'd always thought, okay, I'll go get back to study. And so I did, I got back into uh, into uni. Got back into smoking dope. That was really a bad hit. And so that became... Like, I smoked dope the entire time I was at, at uni. And I think I felt like I owed it to my mum that I had to be successful. And because my old man never gave a shit, that if I could become successful, then maybe he'd be interested. Um, so I think that was some of the drivers, as well as, you know, wanting, I think, to be successful myself. That, you know, so I got through uni and like I got to study in Hong Kong for a bit which was which was awesome I really loved that and I remember thinking okay I want to work in Hong Kong when I finish uni and um you know I had good good marks and I could not get a job anywhere I was crushed I you know I'd worked really hard well really hard might be an exaggeration I'd worked hard mm-hmm. and um I thought everybody's going to want me, and that's certainly the message that you sold at uni. Mm. Everybody want you, you know. <laughs> you'll be, you'll be fighting off the job opportunities, and I wasn't at all. But then I did finally get a job. I got a graduate position, even though I'd been out of uni for eighteen months, for an energy company. And um, I thought, well, here we go. This is I finally landed on my feet. Except I was working in a call centre initially, oh. and that that sucked. And, um, Having done that a bit, like through uni, you know, you, I would take whatever job I could get. Um, but then I ended up in this call centre and then got offered a position as a territory manager. So basically a sales rep. So I had a car, you know, phone, computer, credit card, and I was earning more money than I'd ever earned before. But you didn't like the work. And I oh, couldn't stand it. I didn't know how. I didn't think I could... I could... This wasn't the job for me. I wasn't confident enough person. And did you start to feel, because like I had a kind of similar experience a little bit, and for me I started to feel like, oh, I'm being really selfish, saying this isn't the right job for me, or, you know, this isn't quite right, I'm not going somewhere because I've got something and I should just, you know, like work, put your hard work in, you know, like that. Did you Mm. feel like that? Not overly, because I remember telling my mum I've got this job. And her response, or what I remember of it, was like, oh, really? Oh. It's like, it was never enough. Mm. So I never felt like it was... So I used to feel like, yeah, it, no matter what I did, it was never enough. It's never good enough. So I, I guess I sort of felt like that I needed to do this well in order to get where I should be. Because I wasn't there. And so I, I didn't acknowledge anything. So I'd... At that, around that time, I'd gotten engaged and got married and you know so I was doing all these all the things that I wanted to do 
you know, I'd, I got married, I'd got a well-paid job. Um, not long after, you know, we bought a house. Did your partner use substances? No, no. She knew that I did when we met, but she never really liked that I did. And so that started a pattern of me hiding my usage. But I used to get busted all the time, of course. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, I'd always lie. I became a king at lying about this kind of stuff. Because um, I don't, didn't think I really wanted to... I didn't want to quit. I'd go through these moments of... Were you still just using weed? Yeah. Yeah, that stage I was, yeah. But as I struggled with work, I, I guess this is probably I struggled with my mental health as well. Because, you know, a big part of my identity was around work and being successful to be able to, you know, to be able to do what I needed to do in order to succeed in this role. And I wasn't doing that. And I could see myself failing. I guess that was the first time I'd really failed in anything, really. Because I guess I'd been pretty lucky in that, you know, I was smart enough to that even stoned, I could still get good grades at uni, good marks mm. at uni. But yeah, seeing myself fuck up, and I thought, okay, this this isn't good. But I then started smoking dope at work on the road, and um, and I would just avoid doing the stuff that I had to do. I, I look back now and I wonder why I couldn't see that I was headed for a fall, because it seems really obvious to me now to think, oh, fuck, if you're not... If you're so unhappy and you start taking drugs at work, then surely that's a sign that something's wrong. But mm. I, I still would lie to anybody who asked, you know, how I was going. And I didn't think that, you know... Because I, I, I didn't know that there were services that might be able to help or that I could talk to people about this kind of stuff. This was all, you know, you deal with this on your own. So I, I took off for two, maybe three days, I think. Didn't tell anybody where I was going. You know, we only had one car. Well, I had a work car, but I didn't take that. I took out a car and um, and I got, I think, three boxes of pseudo effigy. And I took, I took 72, so that, that, that is three boxes. I took three boxes in one day wow. and felt like I was going to have a heart attack and drove up. To um, into the snowfields because it was winter. Um, I remember having to stop a couple of times because I thought I was um, either going to pass out or have a heart attack. I didn't feel well, mm. but um, I thought, okay, keep driving, keep driving. And I drove along. I hired ski equipment on the side of the road because I had this great idea that I was going to um, go cross country skiing and that I would get so tired that I would be stuck and stranded and then die of exposure. <laughs> so that was my grand plan. And then, um, so, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. But I remember hiring the ski equipment and the guy saying to me, oh, you know, it's going to, where are you headed? And I'd tell him some story about, oh, you know, I've got, got friends up in Alexandria. And I thought, it's because I'd just seen it on the road sign. So I knew that's where I was headed because I was worried that he wasn't going to hire the gear to me and that would... You know, that would wreck my plan. And I ended up in a caravan park in Marysville. 
And, um, you know, of course I couldn't sleep because I was so um, full on pseudo-ephedrine. And I got up the next morning, put the skis on, and, um, well, I drove up to some snow, put the skis on, and like, I was skiing for about five minutes. And then realised that this was, this was a really stupid idea. There was no way I was going to do it. Um, and so, like, I got back into the car and I thought, oh, fuck. Now what do I do? Even now thinking about, you know, why I thought that dying from the cold, from exposure, was a way to, you know, mm-hmm. to deal with it. But that was, that was my great plan, was that I was going to go out. This is how I was going to end it all. But as I, I guess, started to, you know, get things more in order, I realised that, you know, I'd just take it off and spend all this money and that all these people would be worried about me. And so I had to go home and face the music, which I did, and, you know, and promised that I would get help and I wouldn't do anything like this again. And so I did get help. I saw um, a psychiatrist and I got a diagnosis and I started medication and that... um, Yeah, that was really difficult. I think getting a diagnosis was great because I felt like, okay, it somehow validates what's gone on. Um, But medication was was difficult because of all the side effects. What were your side effects? Um, Because I was working on the road, I had issues with being able to control my bowels. So, to be graphic, I thought I was just, oh, I'm just going to fart. And then I shit my dax. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I can't really go and see clients. And so I used to carry around spare clothes in the car. But this is the kind of dehumanising stuff that people don't talk about. No, no. That they just expect people yeah. that, to take, you know. And mm. Did it actually help at all, the medicine? No, I don't, mm. I don't, I don't ever recall thinking, oh, you know, I remember asking, oh, how long is it supposed to take till it works? And it's like, it's all, well, it varies between people. Between one to three months. And I think three months until I feel anything. But I never record, even now I'm still on medication, but I don't really think that it does all that much. Yeah. But it's like, okay, I know what it feels like when I miss taking it, and that feels really shit. Mm. But I know that that's not the medication making this big difference to my life. It's just that it's really strong medication and that you have to withdraw from it in order to feel normal. But, um, so I tried a few different medications. Well, when was the next big turning point? Uh, I guess for me, because, you know, I got back into doing recreational drugs again because I was, you know, I I had some work and I did okay for, for a few years. You know, things had, had calmed down. And, you know, I was taking medication, seeing my shrink, and, you know, I was working full-time. Wasn't happy, of course, but that was okay because, you know, I was, at least I was being productive. Um, and then I think we had our son, and I think that was really, you know, I was using not... Like, I was smoking dope all the time and, and lying to my wife about it. But, you know, I was using, you know, like, recreational drugs maybe every other weekend. Um, and, you know, she had no idea that I was doing any of that. Mm. Um, 
Oh, yeah, yes, I know what the big... Because I've just gotten into using ice, and um, I think it was just there. I, you know, friends who I've done other stuff with yeah. had, had ice. So, you know, do you want to try it? I was like, yeah, sure. Did having a child make you want to use less at all? I was going to quit taking drugs when I got married and yeah. didn't. And yeah, that was certainly the case when he was born too. Yeah. I was going to quit using, but you know, it didn't make any difference. Yeah. Um, but I would, like I remember when I was between work, when I was smoking dope all the time and um, putting him in a high chair because he couldn't get out of it. And I'd sneak off to the shed and smoke some bombs and then come back, you know, and he'd completely destroy it. Mm. And I'd do that and think, you know, this is pretty fucked. Um, but thought this was, you know, it was better to do that because at least he was safe. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that, I remember this one time waiting for them to drop off ice and a pipe and it was like 2 in the morning when they dropped it off and... Um, I was smoking it out the front of the house next to the car, which happened to be out the front of um, the bedroom where my son was. And thinking, Jesus is fucked. What am I doing? Mm. And like, you know, of course I was up the next day when my wife was off to work. And um, I guess I'd gotten to the point where I was so unhappy and didn't know... And I had this feeling that I couldn't take my own life unless I did something that was going to land me in jail. This, that was the logic that I'd, I'd come to. That, and which basically meant if I killed somebody, then I would take my own life because I couldn't live with the consequence because I didn't, could, couldn't see myself ever going to jail. Mm. Um, so I had this plan that that was what I was going to do. And... You know, I had, had all my stuff ready. and um, I was, To kill someone. Yeah, I was sitting in my son's room. And um, I was just thinking, because I was sleeping in separate rooms at that stage from my wife, because things weren't well in our relationship. So I slept in, in my son's room, which meant that I could smoke dope too um, without getting caught. And um, yeah, I remember crying, sitting on the floor thinking, what? Has it, things come to that I'm contemplating killing somebody so that I'll then take my own life? Mm-hmm. And um, so I caught up with a mate a couple of days later and told him this story, and he was like, Oh, fuck, dude, you need some help. And I was like, Yeah, no shit. Um, and so I saw my, uh, my shrink psych, uh, psychiatrist who I'd been seeing for a while, and he said, Go to hospital get yourself admitted and so I went with my brother and I couldn't get admitted um, they wouldn't admit you no no um, and I remember I think I went back to him a couple of days later and he said I'll, I'll call someone and then I went back and I got admitted then but um, and was that a turning point it was because it was the end of it was a was it one of the many I guess it was the end of my marriage and I think that, you know, we both realised that. And so when I left the hospital, um, I went and lived with my mum, my stepdad in Ballarat, 
and she kept living in the house that we bought with my son. So I think that being separated, I guess, you know, in the relationship, I've already felt that, you know, we were separated anyway by that stage because, you know, we, there there hadn't been intimacy for years and I think because I'd lied so much Mm. that there was no trust. Yeah. And with our son being born, Mm. you know, you know, my then wife's um, focus was upon him and keeping him safe and I wasn't helping with that. So, you know, it made sense to end, end the relationship. Um, yeah, and I remember a mate saying to me, oh, well, you've hit rock bottom because you've moved in with your family. And I remember thinking that, was, that wasn't the case at all because I still had support. And so as much as things were, you know, were pretty ordinary, I guess, you know, I had people who loved me and wanted me to get better. Um, so I felt that, you know, I could get on top of things. But things still didn't change. You know, my mum, my stepdad got me to sign a, um, something to say that I wasn't going to take my own life again. But, you know, I didn't believe it when I signed it. So I got back into using drugs again. Um, and I had supervised visits with my son because um, my then ex didn't trust me and I was really bitter about that Um, but I realised that she had good reason because I wasn't trustworthy at all and that needed to be in place and I think it you know I was getting really tired of of life going through these cycles of being okay for a while, then becoming really unwell, um, taking taking drugs to try and hide all of all of what was going on, and then me, you know, either attempting to take my own life or just doing something um, with the, with that intention. I think I have. To, there's got to be something better to do. There's got to be some way to be able to change some of this. Um, I got on to doing vocational counselling where you see someone and they, you know, you talk about stuff and then they give you an idea of maybe what jobs might, you know, you might be suited for, which seemed like, yeah, sure. And he said, well, you know, why don't you... So I saw for a while and he said, well, you know, maybe you, you could become a drug and alcohol worker. And I thought, oh, yeah. And I did a cert for in mental health and, and AOD. I really enjoyed the study, even though I was, um, you know, still, still using, um, not very often, you know, maybe, maybe once a month, but I guess I started to use a whole lot more, so I'd catch up with friends, and we would party for two or three days, and um, then, you know, it would take me a week to recover. But that seemed to be the only thing that really brought me any joy. That was the only thing that I seemed to want to live for, was, you know, to catch up and get high. Um, But, you know, I still wanted to to study and see where this might lead to as well. And I got placement with a mental health organisation and that was really good. And I ended up getting employed there. 
I was still struggling with my own mental health and I was still having these binges and um, and then I started going into using ice again um, more often and I started using um, when I had care of my son and remember I had my son and my nephew and we'll take them to play soccer and I was smoking ice in the toilet and they were at, at home and they were knocking on the door saying hey, come on hurry up let's go and I drove them and you know drove them to go play soccer you know just had a kick about the three of us and I'm thinking nothing of it at the time but then later on thinking you know fuck there's nothing that you that, you know, will get in the way of me using. Yeah. It didn't matter that, you know, that I was putting my son or my nephew at risk or that, you know, all this study or this new job that I had, I would happily trade that away to get high. My stepbrother died and he was a couple of years younger than me. And, you know, I'd sort of lost contact with him a bit because he lived in WA. But he had um, alcohol and codeine dependency, and he, you know, he really fucked his body, and um, he died um, of an embolism on his lungs, like in his sleep. And he had a daughter who he, who never met, because his you know the mother of the child didn't want him involved in her life. And I remember my stepdad saying to me that um, you know he couldn't lose me as well. And um, I remember thinking, yeah, fuck. Um, it all seemed really... I guess it seemed... Not that it was more likely that I, was, I could die, but that I could die by accident, that maybe it wouldn't be my choice. Mm. And that really that started to worry me, this thought of, you know an accidental suicide doing it when I didn't perhaps didn't really want to do it. Um, and I, so I think that, you know, that I, cause I tried a few times to try and, you know, cut back and go clean and, and not use anything, but I wasn't really that successful. And like I managed to cut back, but then I would, you know, have a massive bender and didn't, wouldn't care but I think it was just this same things started to have bigger impacts and so this time you did manage to stop for good yeah yeah I just I got really tired I was always feeling tired of of these cycles of not getting anywhere and I think it was you know this worry about I had a lot of worries I was worried about something I was worried about getting old and looking back and thinking that I was never able to get my shit together and that, you know, I don't know how I would face, how I would face life, you know, how I would be able to sit with that. Um, and I was worried about my son seeing me as, you know, as a hopeless case, you know, of just some useless person who couldn't, get a job and who used drugs and, you know, couldn't be trusted with money or anything. 
And um, I'm just thinking that I've only got so many opportunities with work and with study, and if I keep fucking all of these up, then I'm not going to be able to achieve anything. So I think that that with perhaps some of the stuff that I've done with, you know, because even though all, all this shit happened over the years, I would still regularly see a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And, you know, and I would swap seeing people and would try, um, you know, I tried CBT and all of this stuff. And I think that over the course of the years that some of that stuff started to sink in. Like I started challenging my thoughts and being a bit more effective and being able to do that. But also like realising that I had to had to do something with my with my time rather than just, you know, twiddling my thumbs, waiting to get high. That I had to, you know, I had to study, I had to work, that I had to eat better, that I had to have better sleep patterns. And shit like exercise. I don't know how many times I got told that exercise was good for mental health, but, you know, I started to ride my bike again and I would feel better. And I was like, okay, there is, there are ways to be able to manage this. But I think that as the longer I went without, you know, using or, you know, using, you know, maybe I only smoke a dope, you know, maybe once or once a month or once a quarter, that, I started to feel better um, and I stopped having suicidal thoughts because I think about suicide close to every day for almost my entire adult life. I would have thoughts of suicide. Sometimes I was fleeting. Sometimes I was really intense. That's such a heavy thing to carry. Yeah. And I, I never thought too much about it because I used to think, well, this is just part of this diagnosis of being bipolar is that, you know, you have thoughts of suicide. But when I stopped having them, I realised how much they had shaped how I lived because it was always at the back of my mind that if things didn't work out, I could take my own life. By that stage, I realised that wasn't something I wanted to do. And, you know, I was more worried about doing it accidentally. So... What did your recovery look like? Like you didn't do rehab and you just, it sounds like you just kind of cut down over time. Yeah. Like what does it look like now? And, um, you know, how did you kind of get to this point? Um, I guess it, it always had revolved around just stop using completely. And, um, you know, I'd do that for a while, but then I'd catch up with friends and that went out the window. And then I realised that I had to cut um, some friendships, ones that I'd had, you know, for long periods of time through through hard times as well, and that was really difficult. But uh, I, I guess I saw it as as well. It's either them or me, um, and and so yeah, I became quite ruthless with that, with cutting friendships and not. And, you know, there's people who I haven't spoken to for years who, you know, who I think about occasionally and I said, you know, this is just... I needed to do this to protect myself. Mm. Um, and, like, I wouldn't... I wouldn't go catch up with some friends at all. I became a bit bit of a hermit. 
and just focused more on myself and um, you know, on on study and on and I guess somewhere along that journey I found out about Shark and absolutely I don't know how I came across it but I had that opportunity to um, join the Speaker Bureau at APSU and that became something that really, I guess, showed me that there was a way to have um, an impact on people where you could talk about some of this stuff and people were really interested. To use your experience in a positive way. Yeah. This feeling, this great sense of, of worth that, because um, I wasn't, at some stage I wasn't doing much at all. And I might be studying, but that I remember feeling that um, I could pursue work as like a consumer consultant or a peer worker or something along those lines where I could use my own experiences. And that that, and something that never that I never had occurred to me before, that I could do that. You know, you always deal with the stigma of, of, of drug use and mental health, but mental health, I guess, that was, that was acceptable, but the drug use never was. So I was always to say that, you know, I had mental health issues, you know, I wouldn't talk about the drug and alcohol stuff. But I guess I see now that, that they are valuable and that they can be valuable for people who I could, you know, potentially work with, you know, and to be able to share, I guess, some of this stuff with a wider audience. I guess in some ways it gives me this sense that, you know, that my life is worth something. And I think that having always having that issue of having your self-worth tied up with your employment is a really problematic thing that has been for me but like I, I guess I don't see it so much work is still really important and what I do in work is important so to be able to see this as um, to have the opportunity to be able to pursue this kind of work um, I see as yeah it, it's unbelievable like I'm I'm wrapped that I've ended up in this space and I don't quite know how I managed to get here. And, you know, I'm just glad that I kept on trying to, to work things out. So I've got a, you know, I've got a really great relationship with my son and with my ex-wife and I've got, you know, supportive friends and family and I think that, you know, it, it took a lot of work from them to... to to assist me, as well as for me to be able to acknowledge that, the damage that I've caused other people. Mm. So I think to have that ongoing support really... Makes all the difference. Yeah, it keeps you strong. And like, you know, I don't see... Like I, I certainly see that I've got opportunities now, but, you know, I don't feel that... I, like I, yeah, I do feel that I'm stronger than what I was. I've got more tools to be able to deal with things. But, you know, life still has challenges to be able to manage my mental health. And, you know, I caught up with friends recently who were using recreational drugs and, like, uh, you know, kept strong. And it's like, oh, I don't know, shit, 
how did I manage to do that? I wouldn't yeah. have been able to do that years ago. Um, but I think, you know, there the things that you always have to keep dealing with and that sometimes in your work it can, you know, it brings up some of that stuff too that, you know, triggers and, and other things. But I think it's, you know, having that opportunity to be able to learn about yourself and I, I have been able to do that. And I think that in some ways I'm, I'm really lucky that some people can go through life without perhaps understanding um, their behaviours and their actions so much. But I, I seem to know myself pretty well. Yeah, um, it does sound like that. It's like I'm, I'm, as much as things haven't taken the path that I thought they might have, look, I'm, I'm glad that in some ways that they have been difficult because it's allowed me to get to where I am now and I'm, um, things are pretty good. If someone was listening to this and they really related to your experience, what's the kind of advice or the key message that you would want to get across? What always surprised me was the benefit that I got from talking about stuff with people, whether it be a clinician or, or a friend or family member. Like sometimes, you know, you don't get the responses you want from friends and family. And then it's like, okay, speak to somebody else. But I think having that opportunity to be able to talk to somebody, you feel so much better about shit. And that always amazes, still amazes me now when I go and see my shrink. I think, oh, you know, we've got nothing to talk about. And I feel better about just talking about, you know, whatever's going on. But I think you need an outlet. You need someone that, who you can trust. Your friends aren't, <laughs> they give you so much. And a lot of the time, you know, your friends don't want you to change. They don't want you to stop using if they're still using. And it took me a while to work that out. To think, okay, there's no point having these conversations with you because you're not the person who's going to challenge me. You're not the person who's going to give me the best advice because you don't want to admit to your issues either. So I think that that, it's important to find someone who you can talk to about this, this shit. And I think to not give up. I think it's easy to um, to come to that conclusion that, especially when you're not well and you're struggling, that, that there's no point to any of this or that you've got no value or that people don't care about you and they won't miss you when you're gone. And, you know, you get into that way of thinking you know, that you're doing people a favour if you take your own life. And um, like I'm really thankful that, that, I'm, that I'm still here. But I, I don't believe at all what I used to, that I don't have value or that people wouldn't miss me um, or that I'd be doing them a favour if I wasn't here. And I think that that... that, that being able to find space to talk about suicide is really hard. Um, but I think that even though it's it can be traumatic for your friends and family when you talk about this stuff, it'd be so much more if you weren't there at all. So I, even though I struggled with it at, at times, and it was always 
you know, I'm still a bit this way now. It's after the crisis that I'll talk about it. And I could talk about anything after the crisis. At, at that point in time, I still tend to fall back on this, I've got to deal with it myself. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, we, you can't deal with these things on our own. And so, you know, you've got to seek that support and you've got to keep trying different things. You know, it will lead you, hopefully, to, to somewhere better. And probably the last thing was to give yourself a break. I think that, you know, we're always our own worst critics. You know, rarely have I ever in my life stopped and given myself a pat on the back for achieving anything. You know, I was never, you know, married, bought a house, had a kid, none of it. I stopped to think that, hey, these are all the things you wanted to achieve. But I never really stopped to to consider that maybe I was doing better than I thought I was. And even now I struggle a bit with it too, to say, hey, you know, it's all right. You can have bad days. You can feel shit about stuff. That's That's okay. But that, you know, that you're doing all right, you're doing good. Probably doing better than, you know, than you give yourself credit for. And I think that that, that to be able to, to be more supportive of yourself. Yeah. Reading something the other day about, you know, you would never talk to someone, to a friend, the way that you talk to yourself. And I was thinking, yeah, shit, that's true. Um... You wouldn't have friends if you spoke to them the way you speak to yourself. But I think that that's, um, you know, it's all easier said than done, isn't it? It is, but I think it's really good advice. We usually finish by asking a couple of, like, quick questions that you've just got to say whatever comes to the top of your head straight away. Okay, so you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, so your favourite food? I was going to say pizza, but it's not even that. (laughs) <laughs> short pizza <laughs> okay your spirit animal um dragon cool your favourite book or TV show um 1984 book oh yes um what is your favourite thing to do in your leisure free time camping what are you learning about at the moment the NDIS fun Um, and what is your favourite quality about yourself Um, I don't take things too seriously that's good Mm. okay well thank you so much for joining us I really appreciate it we've covered so much thank you pleasure thanks for the opportunity straight from the source is the voice of the Association of Participating Service Users or APSU which is a service of the Self-Help Addiction Resource Centre or SHARC APSU is a Victorian consumer representative body which believes that the voice of the people impacted by drugs and alcohol is important and should be heard. In our podcast, we look at a range of different issues relevant to those impacted by drug and alcohol use from varying perspectives and talk real, honest stories straight from the source. We will have more guests and more stories coming to you monthly. Podcast episodes and further information on APSU can be accessed through the APSU webpage, www.apsuonline.org.au, through our Facebook page, APSU Shark, 
and soon through iTunes and other podcasts. Music is from Jimmy Loops. His Facebook is Big Jimmy Loops and his YouTube is Mr. Jimmy Loops. Just a reminder that the views expressed by our guests are not necessarily reflective of Absolute and Shark. And where do we go? That's the question. Does somebody know if there's any other way if I'm beyond the prayer? Because it's every other day that I'm beyond repair. Hold Body hold it, hey. Don't know where to go, don't know where be. I want redemption. 